2: We are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas and Interventional Cardiologist and Founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips.
3: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. We are live in Phoenix, Arizona. We're actually at a medical device maker's booth. We're at the Phillips booth over here at Sky. It's the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention Conference. Lots of interventions cardiologists abound. Really exciting. Um, I can't wait to tell you about all of what's being discussed at this conference, all the new innovations, new tools, new techniques, all of the above. But I want to start out um, and give a big shout out to Dr. John Phillips. He couldn't be here with us today. He might pop in at some point uh, during the next hour. But in the meantime, I'm going to share a little story before we introduce our guest co-host for the day. It's Dr. Shadi Halabi, and he is going to be joining us in just a moment. But I want to really set the stage for what we're going to be mainly talking about. It's it's called intravascular ultrasound, or IVUS. And Philips is one of the makers of this device. And what I love about this device in particular, and no, they're not paying me, I promise you, I am literally here because of personal experience. And I want to share this with you because I work with patients around the world and who have peripheral artery disease, and it's a circulation issue, mainly in the legs. And I always tell every patient to make sure that their doctor is using intravascular ultrasound if they're going in and they're trying to clean out the vessels. I consider it dotting their I's and crossing their T's, and I'll explain why in a moment. But I really found out the value of IVIS when my dad was on the verge of a heart attack. I ended up interviewing several doctors um, after he had his basic diagnostics. He had the nuclear stress test, all of the above. They discovered that he had some blockages in his arteries, mainly the LAD, what they consider the widow maker. And I said to the doctors, hey, one of the things that I want to make sure that you're using is intravascular ultrasound. It gives you a 3D image of the vessel, and we'll have Dr. Lobby go more into the details of how this technology works in a moment, but it's just extra imaging for these doctors. Normally, what they do is they pump in contrast fluid into the vessel, and they look at these vessels, but it's in more of a 2D type of imaging where they can see this contrast fluid under x-ray flowing through the vessels. But there are things that they can miss, and they can't really tell what type of plaque it is for the most part, unless it's rock-hard calcium. They can certainly see that only. The size of the vessel. And so when they're placing balloons, there are different size balloons they could use. There are different size stents. And I really believe that this intravascular ultrasound is very important for the proper sizing and placement of these balloons, stents, and, and other devices to make sure that things are going to go right. And when it came to my dad, I was very happy that I chose a doctor that was using Ivis. He would go in, he would use Ivis, then he would do angioplasty, which is with balloon, and then he would use Ivis again to check his work and make sure there was nothing wrong. And then he would use um, a stent, and then he would Ivis again. So three weeks after my dad had this procedure, he ended up with fluid around his lungs, around his heart. There were all these potential complications, but the one thing we knew for sure. When I talked to his interventional cardiologist, was that it was not caused by the procedure itself. There was not a complication that stemmed from that procedure. It turns out that you know my, my dad, Captain Ambitious is what I call him, he ended up having the procedure. A week later, he ended up with the first COVID shot. Then he ended up, um, what, two weeks later with another COVID vaccine. And then he went for the shingles. And then he went for the pneumonia shot. So his immune system was really all over the place. So it was really all of that that was contributing to the problem. And I knew that and the interventional cardiologist was comforted in the fact that nothing happened during the procedure. There was nothing really serious going on because he used IVIS. And now after that whole thing, Dr. Halabi, you're standing here so patiently. <laughs> you can explain hearing my, my dad's story. This is something that I'm preaching to the choir here in the, in the value of this device. We're going to take a break right here on the Heart of Innovation. We'll be back in just a moment, so stay with us.
1: Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment if PAD is in its advanced stages your physician may schedule a surgical intervention minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 Atherectomy system which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium it's important to discuss all options with your physician and if told you have no options get a second opinion take a stand against amputation for more information Go to StandAgainstAmputation.com. That's StandAgainstAmputation.com.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to TheHeartOfInnovation.org. That's TheHeartOfInnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
3: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Dr. John Phillips is off today, and we'll just say he's off on assignment today. We we can't wait for him to come back next week because we absolutely adore him, and we're missing him since he's gone. I'm here live in Phoenix, Arizona. We're at the Sky Conference. It's an interventional cardiology conference. We have Dr. Shadi Halabi. He is here in Phoenix, Arizona, he's speaking at this conference. I didn't have a chance. I kind of, you know, started right in saying, "Hey, let's talk about intravascular ultrasound," and didn't even have a chance to allow you to introduce yourself and and tell us where you practice and and
4: um, what type of patients that you see the most. Uh, my name is Dr. Halabi. I am an interventional cardiologist. I'm an assistant professor at Indiana University School of Medicine and interventional and endovascular specialist at Community Healthcare System. Our practice is in Northwest Indiana, Monster, Indiana. Um, uh, We cover kind of that area. Um, Basically, you know, one of my passions is, uh, you know, saving legs and saving limbs. And we do that through doing endovascular interventions um, through vascular disease and things like that.
3: Fantastic. And so what are you speaking about here at the conference? Are you shedding any light on any new tools, techniques, any innovation?
4: Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is essentially a new technique that I'm describing for helping patients with end-stage peripheral vascular disease. Those are patients who have uh, uh, open sores and ulcers on their legs and or they have severe, severe pain. We call them critical ischemia patients. What I'm describing today is basically a new technique to help those patients using a different set of catheters and things like that to basically open what we call pedal loop. So we get the blood down straight to the ulcer or where the toe is. And we've shown that healing is actually significantly faster using that technique.
3: Mm -hmm. Why are some doctors resistant to going all the way down to the foot and and tackling some of those smaller arteries down in the feet, the so-called pedal loop or pedal plantar our loop down there? They tell a lot of our patients that the vessels are too small. It's not possible. They're not going to stay open anyway, even if you do touch them.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a learning curve, right? We're slowly advancing the field. Things that we did 10 years ago. Um, and we're doing now, you know, people look at it like, oh, what are you doing? So, you know, the field is is getting advanced slowly by slowly. And it's usually done by bi- pioneers. And a lot of times, you know, the nature of humans, when you start something new, everybody's going to look at you and say, hey, you know, are you sure? Are you sure about that? And that's okay. So I think that keeps us in check. And, you know, uh, there's a group of us, uh, you know, we call ourselves limb savers or critical, critical limb ischemia uh, operators. And essentially we've, there's enough science and data and we've seen a lot of it uh, help patients where we we want to get the blood flow all the way down to the foot all the way down to the ulcer all the way down to the sore and we've shown that patients are healing faster they're doing better uh but you know we do consider ourselves in, in one sense pioneers and we and we expect and we like that criticism and people should ask like why are you doing it what's the data and we show it to them and the patients love it And think you know, there's been a huge uh, success with that
3: and i think as an interventional cardiologist you're used to st- to dealing with smaller vessels anyway, right? In, in the coronary region. So it just paves the way for you to just go straight to the feet. And
4: that's absolutely right. You, it's a very good point because, you know, in coronary interventions, we're dealing with the heart, arteries of the heart. So basically, like you said, there are two millimeter vessels, or three millimeter vessels, very, very, very small. And we've shown that we save people lives. You open them in, in heart attacks and things like that. When what we're saying right now in the peripheral vascular world, right? That means the arteries of the legs, you know, they start pretty big and then they, they taper, taper all the way down to the foot, which are called pedal arteries or below the knee arteries. And those are two to three millimeter vessels. The fact that, you know, interventional cardiologists are dealing with two and three millimeter vessels in the heart kind of gives them an, an edge that they're able to do it. But I, I don't, you know, I think other doctors work, uh, doing a lot of vascular work and different specialties are also able to do that. Um,
3: and and I, you probably love doing the legs. I mean, if you do coronaries, and you've got a moving target there versus the legs. That's just a straight shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know,
4: it's uh, both of them bring their own uh, set of uh, challenges and things like that. And, you know, the fact that we operate on both, I think that makes you a better interventionalist and better operator. If you take care of the heart arteries, you're able to take care of the leg arteries. Um, and, you know, one of the things, the reality is, um Interventional cardiologist that they've been doing coronary heart interventions for a very long time. So your skill set actually improves as you're doing more of that. And then when we, when, when we're doing now legs, we can use some of the skills and some of the techniques that we've learned from the heart arteries to the legs. Actually, I was just sitting with one of my colleagues who's a specialist in um, opening difficult blockages in the heart arteries and we sat together and we exchanged ideas and we're like, you know, this is what I use for the arteries of the foot and of the leg. He's like, that's what I use. And we started just going back and forth and exchanging ideas on how we can help patients in those two different uh, vascular beds.
3: And I think that that's what's really beneficial at a conference like this. So coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to have more with Dr. Halabi, and we're going to have a couple other folks joining us to talk about safety in interventions, a big topic here at this conference. So stay with us. Medical Notepad, brought to you by Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated's Patient
5: Advocacy Campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation, and The Weight of My Heart. My name is Anika Dua. I'm a vascular surgeon at Mass General and director of our Limb Evaluation Amputation Prevention Program.
3: How do you know if you are a right candidate for a bypass And number two is, how do you choose the vascular surgeon for the bypass?
5: I'll start out with the first one about choosing the vascular surgeon. Um, In order to have a good bypass, you need a variety of factors. Number one, of course, you need an excellent surgeon. You need someone who cares about you and someone who knows what they're doing. Number two, you as the patient need to have some factors that are going to make a bypass more likely to work. Number one, things that you can control. That would include taking your medication, so your blood thinners, after the procedure, taking good care of your incisions so that they don't get infected, and doing things that the doctor tells you, including having the right nutritional choices to heal up these big wounds, and walking so that you get that blood flow moving. Okay, so these are things you can control that you need to optimize. Now, things you cannot control that are also fundamentally important to a bypass being successful include having the right conduit, the ideal situation is that there's a long, juicy, thick piece of vein that we can use to make that bypass happen. But if you are a patient that has potentially had a heart procedure in the past where the vein has already been taken, or you're a patient that had had venous reflux in the past and the vein has been eradicated as part of your venous treatment, these are situations where you simply will not have the vein that we would be able to use to do the bypass, and we will have to use prosthetic which already reduces the uh, chances of the bypass staying open long-term by a little bit and increases the infection rate. But of course, if you don't have vein, you don't have vein. The other really important thing about you as a patient is in order for a bypass to work, you have to have inflow of blood and you have to have outflow. So think of a highway system. Let's say there's a car crash on the highway. What does a cop need to do? The cop needs to detour the cars from where there's good road, no car crash, to where there's good road down here, again, no car crash, around the area of the car crash. But imagine if someone just bombed the highway. Now the cops have nowhere to detour those cars because there's nowhere to go. What's happened is over the last 30 years, because of diabetes, because of smoking, because of end-stage renal disease, Patients have gone from having good highway, good blood supply here and good blood supply here where a doctor could do a nice bypass to a situation where there's basically carpet bombing of all the blood vessels from the knee down to the foot. So the problem then becomes, I have nowhere to bypass to. In order for a bypass to work, you have to have inflow, outflow, conduit. Conduit is the vein or the prosthetic. So the reason the bypasses are failing is not because... There's a technical situation, not because the vascular surgeon's not good, not even because the patient's not doing what they need to be doing. It's because nowadays, because our medical therapies are so good, because people are living longer with diabetes, we are now seeing the eradication of the outflow blood vessels from the knee down to the foot, such that when you do a bypass, blood gets into that bypass. Everything's great up top. But when it gets down to, let's say, mid-calf, where we've done the connection, maybe the bypass stays open for a couple of months, but then the disease process that got you there in the first place, that's still going and knocking off those blood vessels that's down by your foot. And ultimately, blood is pretty stupid. Blood does two things. It flows or it clots. So if it's not flowing, it's going to clot. And so if you have a blockage beyond where your bypass is connected and blood has nowhere to go it's going to stagnate and it's going to clot off now when you have a prosthetic bypass one of the benefits of having plastic is that i can go in there as the doctor and suck out that clot and and shove things in there and put a lysis catheter in there to clot bust this and try to get the bypass open when you have a vein bypass because it is your own body When there's clot in there, that clot's like gum and it sticks to the side of the vein and it's real difficult to go in there and get the clot out without damaging the inside aspect of the vein, which causes clotting to happen again. So doctors have shifted their thinking from simply, hey, I want a bypass that's going to last 10 years to I want to get some blood down to the foot to heal your wound. Because if your wound heals and then let's say your bypass shuts down, at least I've healed your wound and gotten you back to some sort of basic, you know, livable situation. So in terms of picking the vascular surgeon, it's not that simple. It's not that the bypass is not working because your vascular surgeon is bad. Not at all. If it's a vascular surgeon trained in an appropriate program, that's going to be a person that knows how to do a bypass. That's going to be a person that can do a technically sound procedure. But the problem is the technical aspect of it, albeit incredibly important, is not the only reason why a bypass goes down. So actually, I would advise the most important thing that a patient does is take that time talking to the doctor about, talk to me about my inflow, my outflow, and my conduit. Talk to me about these three things. Because if these three things are optimized, you're going to get the doctor saying, oh, you're going to be great. You got a beautiful, juicy piece of vein. You have a nice, nice, thick artery up here with good blood flow you got a nice area that's a good target down below you're going to be wonderful or the doctor is going to say hey great question actually I'm going to have to use prosthetic on you this is why you don't have vein because of this 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 and down below here's your angiogram down here look there's not much area for blood to go probably do a good bypass on you and my hope is it's going to stay open x amount of time These are the things we can do to optimize that. I'm going to put you on full dose blood thinner. I'm going to ask you to walk this much. I'm going to ask you to get this type of wound care. Because remember, what's happening when the bypass goes down is clot. Clot forms for a variety of reasons, one of which is the hypercoagulable state, the hyperclotting state that you get when you're infected. So if I have done a vein harvest and taken vein out of your opposite leg and you as the patient don't do what I say in terms of taking your antibiotics and in terms of keeping that incision clean, now you get pus coming out of that incision that makes your whole body inflamed and you clot off your bypass graft, even though everything is perfect. So there's a variety of pieces and your vascular surgeon's job, aside from the technical side of things, is to optimize your story to get the most chance that that bypass is going to stay open. Remember, the advice and views
3: offered during this series are for informational and educational purposes only. Always ask your own health care provider for explicit consent before acting on any information provided here. If you want more information on peripheral artery disease, go to StandAgainstAmputation.com. And for real-time support, go to TheWayToMyHeart.org.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am live at this Sky Conference, the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions Conference, basically a society of interventional cardiologist in phoenix arizona i am at the phillips booth here at the conference and the reason i'm here is because one of the devices that i think should be in every physician's uh you know armamentarium is the intravascular ultrasound and i think it's really a matter of safety it's a newer device and it gives doctors the ability to better view what's going on in the vessel the morphology of the plaque the size of the vessel etc cetera, etc cetera. i look at it as dotting your eyes, crossing your t's and i have with me right now first i have dr shadi halabi we've been talking to him for most of of the hour and he treats both the peripheral arteries mainly the leg arteries as well as the, the coronary region you know people who have heart disease coronary artery disease as well and you know i we were talking during the break, going back to talking about IVIS uh, again, and I—why I, is it? I hear that there are some doctors that do not use this device. I look at it as a matter of safety nowadays, and if you have a new device that could make things safer, I would think that people would want to use it. So, why some of the resistance to adoption?
4: You know, I think the data is mounting right now. You know, there's um, what. You'll see in terms of Ivis is that there is, you know, right now we have consensus documents that show that you know you should you you should use Ivis. We have recommendations by the American Heart Association saying you have to and you should strongly consider using Ivis. And the science behind it shows that you know you're getting and and the coronary world will actually show that if you get an. Um, an artery that gets unclogged and they use the Ivis technology, you live longer, the intervention lasts longer, the patient feels better uh, in the long term without having to come back for the procedure. Um, It's a new technology. You'll see there's a lot of growth in the use. Like this is, you know, going across everywhere where you see people are using it more and more. You, you know, naturally will see a lot of the younger doctors sometimes adopt it faster than the older ones. However, I think that, you know, Several years down the road now with the recommendations from the American Heart Association and the consensus documents, you're going to see the use really go higher and higher and higher and higher. And that's the thing that's important for the patients. And I think there is a role for the patient, you know, when we're, with the reason for, you know, for this, we're educating them, say, hey, listen, when you go and talk to your um, cardiologist or your intervention radiologist or vascular, or whoever it is, it's not unreasonable to say, hey, you know, I looked up, you know, we, I heard this over the radio. I looked up some of the uh, studies online or what have you, and it shows that, you know, you can, if I do the intervention using IVS, you're going to have, you know, less complications, you know, in the heart, you're going to make me live longer is this a technology that you use this is not you know this is a question that we sometimes get and we really want to empower patients to go to your doctors and say you know if you're a great doctor i have a good report with you but when we're doing that intervention is there a possibility for you to use ivis um for that for that intervention
3: and i think that's so important and that's what i did with with my dad was i said hey, I went through seven doctors. I got seven different opinions. And it wasn't until I I met with that seventh doctor and he said, I, you know, I, Ivis, I balloon. I, Ivis, I stent. And, And I think it's so important. I'm wondering when it comes, and that was for coronary. When it comes to peripherals, there's a, a, a big issue when it comes to what's called restenosis, with the artery, re, you know, reblocking again is particularly in the stent area. And one of my theories is based on I work with more than 12,000 patients around the world and in talking to them, seeing the case notes from their procedures, et cetera, et cetera. The ones that seem to block up are the ones where I don't see that IVUS is used. And doctors have placed the wrong size of stents. In there, they they don't cover the entire treatment area. They use the wrong size balloon, and they end up just pumping the heck out of it because they misjudge the size of the the vessel, and the vessel dissects, or there's a perforation, or even worse. In Houston recently, I had a patient that was treated, and the doctor did not catch a perforation in a vessel below the knee, and she came back three weeks later. She lost her leg because they didn't catch it, and if they would have used IVIS. They would have caught it right away and probably would have stented it. And I'm sure that this is a consideration for you, you know, why you actually use it.
4: Yeah. So I think IVIS is an excellent tool. Uh, not so much in perforations, but really it's telling you about, uh, the nature of the disease. It's giving you the size, uh, it's giving you the size of the vessel. It's giving you what kind of disease is inside the vessel. So when I'm treating it, you know, I could change that based on that. And we have, you know, we have studies that show that when you use IVIS, you change your treatment plan. So I'm coming in, want to do treatment A and then I do an IVIS and you're like, you know, maybe type B is a better treatment. And we have now. Strong data that shows that, you know, when you talk about restenosis, right, that's kind of the, one of the things in peripheral vascular diseases, the arteries tend to close up again. We have data to show that if you use IVIS, the risk of restenosis is lower. The strongest type of data. It's called a randomized controlled trial. So um, I really think it's the right way to go.
1: Hello and good day. You're listening to The Heart of Innovation with Kim McNichols and her guests. We'll be right back after these messages.
3: Life and limb could depend on it.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips.
3: Michelle, we are live in Phoenix at the Sky Conference, the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention Conference, the... Conference of Interventional Cardiologists, we've been talking to uh, Dr. Shadi Halabi. He has been here with us, um, but we are now also joined by some folks from Philips. They're in charge of safety, uh, David Chalian and Steve Sidi Hope I got that right right? They'll, you know, introduce their titles in just a moment. But we've been talking about intravascular ultrasound, which for me is a, a really important device for safety now when it comes to peripheral interventions and it comes to coronary interventions. Um, so, you know, thank you so much. It's one of your devices. No, I'm not being paid by them. I promise you that. <laughs> I'm just excited to be here to learn more about it at some point, guys. I'm going to go down to one of your labs. And I'm going to learn how to use this device myself because I actually think it's a really good learning tool um, for patients to understand the morphology of the plaque inside their arteries. And if a doctor would actually give them the images afterwards and say, hey, look, here's your calcium and here's the different types of plaque that you have going on here. And look, there's that little bit of flow that's going through. I think it would do wonders in helping to empower patients to take their health into their own hands. And I see Steve, you know, you're 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 nodding. You agree with that.
6: Yeah, Kim, I can I do agree with that. I think what we want to try to do here is twofold. Educate the patients of the potentials. Potential is good and the potential is not so good. Because again you want to be very transparent and forthright with the patients. Two, we want to make sure that the patients to your point are empowered to make the decisions for themselves. Obviously in unison with their physicians. Mm-hmm. But we want to make sure that they understand the full outcome potentials. They want to make sure that they understand the technologies that are available and then really make sure that it applies to them in terms of not just their procedure, but post-procedure activities. Those are things that we also want to highlight. So it's all around educating, informing, and engaging the patient as part of the process.
3: All right, and and you're newer to to Phillips right now. You are the. I'm just going to call you, and you can you can be more clear. But the chief safety officer, even above the chief medical officer, you're really above there, really driving home the point of how important safety is when it comes to these medical devices.
6: Absolutely, you know, and in, in my role as the chief patient safety and quality officer, it's ensuring that that we Phillips lead that mission with our physician partners, with the community partners, and saying, how do we make sure that we're an advocate for the patients? And advocacy is not just, you know, quote, selling them a procedure. It's making sure they understand what the procedure is about, how it affects them, what they need to do in preparation, what they need to do in in post-procedures. It's really making sure that we cover the full care continuum. Sometimes medical device industry, we just focus on the procedure. When in reality, it's we have to make sure that the patient is fully informed, comforted before they go into it because it's a nervousness it's an apprehension but two they understand the procedure for them why is it best for them because again while we're focused on patient safety our real focus is on patient outcome yeah. we want to make sure that the therapeutic the diagnostic and every tool available ibis etc is available and that the patient understands why we are proposing and or giving them more information so that they can work with their physicians to make the most informed decision for them
3: and David, if if a doctor is having a bad day, a patient's having a bad day, and ultimately the medical device maker is having a bad day, right?
7: Absolutely, we're all, we're all in this together. You know, we a lot of times we partner with medical societies, and we really look for ways that we could generate evidence and disseminate evidence efficiently, and making sure that that never happens. So our focus really is to be able to solve access issues that happen in the operating room. Uh, everybody knows it's a challenging environment. Uh, you've seen yourself whenever you attend and you shadow, I've heard your stories. Uh, they quickly incorporate you into their workflow. It's because they're facing a shortage. There's a lot of burnout out there. There's a lot of turnover out there. And any way we as a medical device company could, could help with that. Um, uh, we're, we're definitely pursuing all, all fronts. So
3: it's really interesting. And I'm just curious, even from Dr. Holabi. I mean, it, it's not just, I've seen doctors go in there and they, they you know, may not even use intravascular ultrasound. They, you know, may just have their standard contrast fluid. They pump on in there. They have their 2D image and they may not have anything more than a wire and a balloon. So it, it it's, it's really comes down, though, to the doctor. They could have any tool. They could have um, any, any device out there, but it, it comes to the doctor. It comes down to their training. It comes down to their passion a, as well.
4: You know, as a doctor, what you want is the best thing for your patient. So, you know, when, when I'm treating a patient, for example, you know, we're talking about IVIS here and this goes to any other device. Number one is I want to make sure that there's been studies that show that they improve patient outcome. And I think that we have. Clearly established that, like I said, we have the studies, we have the guidelines, we have the consensus documents. Everybody telling doctors those are what we follow. Telling us you should do IVIS on those things. We partner with industry where you know we ask them. You know this is a new technology, so there's kind of two things that we ask from our industry. Uh, Number one, even when you're a new doctor, when I started learning IVIS, you know I reached out to my societies and my mentors and to industry help me, educate me on this. Like, it seems to be helping patients. What can I do? And, you know, they stepped in and they basically helped us. There's a lot of educational uh, courses for fellows who are, you know, medical trainees that you can, you know, reach out to them and they'll train you on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they kind of did that. And then not only that, but, you know, the nice thing um, where we've partnered with industry is that, as a, as a user of Ivis, sometimes, you know, let's say I have a, a challenging case that I want a second opinion, or I want like a good uh, representative to be there, they're, they're there to support me. If I have issues sometimes with the device, it's a very easy to choose device, but nonetheless, any technology uh, can cause issues. I reached out to them and say, Hey, I have this like, you know, complex case, or I've scheduled three cases for my patients, you know, with with critical disease. And I would like someone to be there for me. And, you know, they've, they've kind of stepped up and showed up there. So it's been in a it's a good partnership and we all work together with and we want the best for our patients
3: yeah and, and both industry and and physicians really want to see these devices work they don't want to have poor outcomes and one of the places um patients can actually go uh which i know that there are some doctors some device makers that may not want a patient to go there but um is to the fda's website there's the mod area of the website, M-A-U-D-E, and I can share this with patients if anyone wants to email into the show, I'm happy to share the exact link, but it's where um, physicians can actually report complications with certain devices, and I think it's really important that a patient before a procedure says, hey, what are some of the tools in your armamentarium, and then say, hey, even spell them, write them down for me, and then go to the FDA's website, go to this particular page, and look them up and see what sort of complications have arisen, and then go back to the doctor and say, how are you going to mitigate the risks of these complications? And I see, again, Steve, you're nodding. Um, do you agree with that?
6: I, I do. And, and it's all about being transparent. It's, it's all about making sure that we, that we are a learning culture. As Dr. Habiby said, that one of the things we want to do is work with physicians to understand not just that complicated case, but are there things that we can do in our technology, in our techniques, in our training, To alleviate that because that may not be an end of one that could be an end of many that we want to get out in front two you talked about the mod database and that is a a public database that the fda looks. not only are physicians able to report but industry we're able to report and we report and, we, and it's really around making sure that, that we are truly transparent. One, two, that we become a learning community. You know, what else is out there? What can we do? What complications happen? Whether that is with the instrument, the, the, the product itself, whether that's with the technique, whether that is just with the specific case. And so we want to make sure that, that it's, it's a transparent conversation. Again, as I said earlier, informed, educated. There are situations that could, could arise. We need to be aware of them and be prepared for them. And if we don't share the information, if we're not open and honest and transparent with ourselves, we're going to mess that. And that's the key element.
3: And, and just as we had to break in a, in a moment here, I just am curious, you know, in, in terms of you just starting out and, and getting in here at, at Phillips, what are some of your goals to improve the safety and efficacy of, of these devices for patients moving forward?
6: I think we're looking at it twofold. One, from historical, we as Philips have not always lived up to that mission. And so we need to own and acknowledge that there are opportunities for us to continue to improve. Two, looking forward is how do we work with our physicians, our patients, and, and patient advocacy groups to better that mission? And so one thing that we're doing at, at Philips that we, we, we have been coming up in, in June is we're introducing a, the Philips Patient Safety Advisory Board. This is an independent board of physicians across the globe, across our different modalities and our different technologies, patient safety advocates, um, people from the FDA, you know, ex-FDA, ex-industry members, et cetera. And it's really doing two things. One, how do we do the long-term education advocacy? You know, and then two, short-term, how do we have that independent board that allows us to challenge ourselves on design, product development, reported issues, et cetera. And so we want to make sure that we're doing that in a very open, free, safe environment. And by having that independence, by having that, 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 that skill set, that mindset at our, at our disposal, we're going to be better for it. And that's what we're trying to drive.
3: Fantastic. And coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we'll have more with the folks here at Phillips at Sky, so stay with us.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation, For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
3: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the show. Again, we are live in Phoenix, Arizona at the Sky Conference, and it's a conference of interventional cardiologists. We have Dr. Shadi Halabi here and, and some folks from Philips, Steve, and, and David, and we only have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to touch on a really important point because we have the young Dr. Halabi here as many more years to come, and during these uh, these procedures, he's exposed to radiation. So not just about patient safety because they try to minimize the amount of radiation or um, exposure to the x-rays as they can. but what about for the doctors that are in this all the time? What are you guys doing or what are you looking at to reduce the risk of you know radiation damage for these for these doctors?
7: Sure, you know and you know a lot of times as Phillips, we have the unique advantage of, of having a whole series of modalities where we we could reduce radiation from the beginning all the way to the end of the procedure. Uh, we have x-ray technology. a lot of times the patient by the way, and the physician are in the same boat. So to say, so the patient is also exposed to radiation. And if, if you really, uh, if if you really are aware of the new tools that exist across modalities and across our solution portfolio, you're able to take advantage as a as a as, a, as an operator. And that's an, it's a critical topic. We'll see that more and more medical societies are now turning a, turning their their uh you know their head towards towards that topic. But that's something that we will be looking to develop further and further. Uh, This year, we've seen our dynamic coronary roadmap, being able to show appreciable radiation reduction, contrast load for patients. A lot of patients with low GFR, uh, that's your renal function, basically. Uh, So patients that have poor renal function for them, contrast clearance is an issue. Uh, So we're looking for any opportunities where we could reduce that for the patient, reduce radiation for the operator, uh, and and bring those bring those solutions to the market as quickly as we hum- as, as we possibly can.
3: Yeah, you brought up a good point with the CKD, the chronic kidney disease patients, and the use of contrast fluid, and that's something else that I have found that the intravascular ultrasound is really on top of using even more CO two um, for those particular patients. But in in terms of radi- radiation, we have about thirty seconds. Here, I, I wanted to go to you, Dr. Lobby, because interventional radiologists who also do some of these procedures, um, before they graduate, they have to literally have some sort of safety uh, certificate for, for radiation, but that's not something I'm surprised for interventional cardiology. Is that something going forward that they might require, uh, you think, or you would hope they would require some sort of testing to see how um, doctors can reduce their exposure to the radiation during these procedures? Yeah,
4: so radiation is a big topic right? because it, it exposes doctors and patients and it has been associated with cancer risk. So whatever we can do to decrease it, then that's important. IVIS, instead of using radiation, you can actually use it and it basically decreases radiation to the patient, the operator. I invite you, I uh, there's a zero contracts vascular intervention paper that I have um, uh, online that you can take a look at and we'll tell you a little bit more about that.
3: Thank you so much. Live from Sky, have a great weekend, everyone.
2: You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
1: This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network.